Celestial clockwork in Greece and China. We would often like to think that our voyages of exploration in the world of learning were precisely navigated or that they followed prevailing winds of scholarship. As often as not, however, it is the chance storm that drives us to unsuspected places and makes us discover America when looking for the Indies. On some three and a half occasions it has been my extraordinary good luck to have been precipitated into unfamiliar and rich regions where I would never have looked but for the winds of fate that suddenly puffed my sails. The fortunate fact that these several happenings proved coherent provides me excuse for attempting to communicate some of the excitement as well as the conclusions of this personal testament. These researches just happened, and only reasonable attitude must be gratitude for circumstances and above all for colleagues whose friendly help enabled a mere trespasser to savor the delights of the medievalist archaeologist and the sinologist. My original course was set in 1950 toward a study of the experimental tools and laboratories of the scientist, a good borderland area lying between the histories of science and technology. This was in accordance with my specialized training in experimenting with scientific instruments, and it was particularly appropriate subject at Cambridge University, where the then-recently-opened Whipple Museum of the History of Science provided access to a wonderful collection of antique instruments exemplifying the only prime documents in that field. The instruments, and indeed all the available secondary histories, provided reasonably complete documentation, only after the 16th century, which saw the proliferation of practical science and heralded the scientific revolution. From that time on, there was plenty of material to work with. Before that period, sources were remarkably scarce, and it was apparent that a considerable effort should be made to see what there was in medieval times and perhaps back into antiquity. With this in mind, and also being aware of the rare privilege of constant access to the great manuscript collections of Cambridge, I made a point of trying to examine every available medieval book that contained something about scientific instruments. After some months of relatively trivial result, and at a point about halfway through my list of manuscripts to look at, a gust blew before me. At the Pern Library of Peterhouse, the oldest Cambridge library, there was but one noteworthy item dealing with instruments. The catalogue described this as a tract, Latin, sippet, cited, on the construction of an astrolabe. It was a rather dull volume, traditionally attributed to an obscure astronomer, and had probably hardly been opened in the last five hundred years it had been in the library. As I opened it, the shock was considerable. The instrument pictured there was quite unlike any astrolabe, or anything else immediately recognizable. The manuscript itself was beautifully clear and legible, although full of erasures and corrections exactly like an author's draft after polishing, which indeed it almost certainly is. And above all, nearly every page was dated 1392 and written in medieval English instead of Latin. My high school had had a mad English teacher who, instead of spoiling Shakespeare, taught us Old and Middle English for a year, so fortuitously I was not completely unprepared for the task. The significance of the date was this, the most important medieval text on an instrument. Chaucer's well-known treatise on the astrolabe was written in 1391. To find another English instrument track dated in the following year was like asking what happened at Hastings in 1067. The conclusion was inescapable that this text must have had something to do with Chaucer. 
It was an exciting chase, which led to the eventually published thesis that this was indeed, very probably, a second astronomical tract by our great poet in Moova, the only work in his own handwriting. Perhaps the most hectic part of the sleuthing I have never dared tell before. It was a search in the public record office to compare the writing on the Peter House manuscript with that on a slip of paper which had been proposed as the only possible document that might be a Chaucer autograph. The slip was one of several dozen threaded together on a string in a file bundle which the record office librarian brought. He was on the point of looking in the catalog to see which all of those was one in question. When I stopped him, rifled through the bundle and immediately saw, standing out dramatically, the one slip that seemed unquestionably in the same hand. It was indeed the very one sought. By the end of this research, I was considerably more familiar with the history and structure of the planetary equatorium, the instrument which Chaucer had described as a companion piece to his astrolabe. This pair of instruments was to a medieval astronomer what a slide rule is to an engineer. The astrolabe was used to calculate the positions of the stars in the heavens. It could also be used by simple observations, just as a slide rule can function as a straight edge. An equatorium was used to calculate the positions of the planets among the stars. This new background in the early history of other instruments led me to realize that the astrolabe and equatorium occupied a strategic place in history. There were by far the most complicated and sophisticated artifacts throughout the Middle Ages. Their history seemed to extend back continuously in that period, though it was uncertain whether they should be described to a Hellenistic or just an early medieval origin. At the other end of the time scale, they survived in some form or other until the 16th and 17th centuries, becoming then involved with the great astronomical clocks of the Renaissance and the Auries and planetariums which, respectively, had such a spectacular vogue in the 18th and 20th centuries. Here one was fishing in very rich waters. The specific task at hand was to see whether the astrolabe and the equatorium would contribute to what was surely a very complex and unsatisfactory state of knowledge of the origin of these astronomical showpieces. They heavily influenced the thought of such people as the theologian Paley, the scientist Boyle, and the poets Dante and, of course, Chaucer. They pushed philosophy toward mechanistic determinism, but in its setting of the history of science, the larger task seemed to be the one that was fundamental for our understanding of modern science. This large task concerns an appreciation of the fact that our civilization has produced not merely a high intellectual grasp of science, but also a high scientific technology. By this has meant something distinct from the background noise of the low technology that each civilization and society has evolved as part of its daily life. The various crafts of the primitive industrial chemists, of the metallurgists, of the medical men, of the agriculturalists, all these might become highly developed without presaging a scientific or industrial revolution such as we have experienced in the past three or four centuries. The high scientific technology seems to be based upon the artifacts produced by and for scientists, primarily for their own scientific purposes. The most obvious manifestation of this appeared in the 17th century, when all sorts of complex scientific gadgets and instruments were produced and proliferated to the point where they are now familiar as the basic equipment of the modern scientific laboratory. This is, indeed, the story of the rise of the modern experimental science. 
Curiously enough, this movement does not seem to have sprung into being in response to any need or desire on the part of the scientists for devices they might use to make experiments before measurements. Galileo and Hooke extended the senses by telescope and microscope, but it took decades before these tools found further application. On the contrary, it seems clear that in the 16th and early centuries the world was already full of ingenious artisans who made scientific devices that were more wondrous and beautiful than directly useful. Of course, many of the things, to be saleable at all, had to be useful to a point. Consider, for example, the clock. It certainly had some use in telling the time a little more accurately than common sundials, but one gets much more the impression that even the common domestic clock, not to speak the great cathedral clock, was regarded in early times more as a marvel and as a piece of conspicuous expenditure than as an instrument that satisfied any urgent practical need. The usefulness, of course, developed later. Eventually, the artisans became so clever and were producing such fine products that the public and the scientists came to them to obtain not only clocks, but a whole range of other scientific devices. It seemed, then, that given, let us say, the clockworks of the 16th century, one could proceed in reasonably continuous historical understanding to the advanced instruments built by Robert Hooke for the early Royal Society, and from that point, by equally easy stages, to the cyclotrons and radio telescopes of today's physics laboratories and also to the assembly lines of Detroit. The problem was to account for the production of highly complicated clockwork and the development of the ingenious craftsmen in the 16th century. Now, the history of the mechanical clock is as peculiar as it is fundamental. Almost any book on the history of the time measurement opens with a pious first chapter dealing with the sundials and water clocks, followed by a chapter in which the first mechanical clock described looks recognizably modern. The beginning is indeed so abrupt that it often seems to me that the phrase history of time measurement must have been expressly coined to conceal from the public an awful fact that the clock, as distinct from other time-telling devices, had no early history. It appears to spring forth at birth fully formed and in healthy maturity, needing only a few improvements such as the substitution of a pendulum for the foliot balance and the refinement of the tick-tocking escapement into a precision mechanism. It is even worse than this. It so happens that the very earliest mechanical clocks we know are the magnificent astronomical showpieces, such as the great clocks of Strasbourg Cathedral and Prague. In fact, the earliest of them all, a clock built by Giovanni de Dondi in Padua in 1364, is by far the most complicated of the series. It contains seven dials showing each of the planets and all sorts of other astronomical data, with an extra rather inconspicuous dial that tells the time. It uses intricate multiple trains of gear wheels, even with pairs of elliptical gear wheels, link motions, and every conceivable mechanical device. Nothing quite so exquisite mechanically was built again, so far as we know, till a couple of centuries later. Even today, a more cunningly contrived piece of clockwork would be hard to find.